God's word to us today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is what he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't yet, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. While you're doing that, we'll go ahead and pray. Lord, we praise you and we give you thanks for you are good. And your steadfast love is everlasting, God. How can we speak of all of your great works? How can we speak of your love, God? We can't unless you work through us and through your word, God. Your love is eternal and everlasting. And upon those promises, we will stand and come to you with humility and brokenness. Asking that you would make us into the image of your son. Redeem us, God. Redeem us, we pray. Amen. It was a glorious wedding. 
in June 2005. It was a former speakeasy that is now a vineyard and had a beautiful river flowing through it. And it, at this at this place, it was almost a compound. They had peacocks roaming around. And for Rachel, it had been months and months of tedious planning. Uh, not to be of any surprise to you, I had like nothing to do with the planning of the wedding. But all of the guests, all of the food, all of the plates, how they're going to be situated, where people are going to sit. Can we put these two people together? No, I don't think so. Let's separate them, but we can't put them over by them. So all of that is figured out by Rachel, except for one small thing. That was mine, and that was mine. And the ceremony was it was perfect. It was perfect. I remember being like Phil and just weeping, watching my bride walk down the aisle. And we had an evening of dinner and dancing with family and friends. And then, as it begins to wind down... We're going to make our glorious exit and go off to our our hotel in San Francisco. And this is where my moment is to shine, right? My job is to get us the limo to bring us out of this vineyard to San Francisco. Unfortunately, the limo didn't show up. And so we're standing there and it's like a dagger, you know, of this climactic moment of getting sent off. And we go out there and it's... There's nothing, and you go, oh no, what do you do? And um, so things get much worse, and you find yourself in the back of your father-in-law's car with him and your mother-in-law driving you and your bride off to... Off to your honeymoon. Now, I can do awkward, believe me. I swim in these waters pretty well, but even for me... It was a little too much. It was a little too much. So what do you do, brothers and sisters? What do you do when the one whom you expect to come and to bring you to your moments of glory is not at all what you expect? Herein lies the predicament of the Messiah for those who came and watched him and were expecting one thing, but the Messiah comes and his whole, his whole birth is adorned in humility. So what do we do? Well, then we ourselves must adorn our lives with humility. So as we look at this text here, we're not going to be able to go through all of it. It's quite a bit. But we're going to see here with Christ and him coming down. He has a, a humble town that he comes to. He has a humble mother and a humble birth. And then also, finally, he has some humble guests that come. So you see the birth of Christ. Everything around it is adorning himself with humility. Not by happenstance, but by direct fulfillment of everything that was to take place. And so we see this humble town, a humble mother, and a humble birth as well as humble guests that come to him. So let's go back to the text here. We'll read um, verses 1 through 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all over the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his hometown to be registered. I can't get the NIV out of my head. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with his child. Now, when you're doing marital counseling, it all kind of pretty much comes down to one question, and that is, what did you expect? <laughs> what did you expect? You're marrying a sinner who is sinning far before you ever met them. And then as you, you take that same question, what did you expect? And then you place it on these first centuries. And these first century Jews awaiting the Messiah. And you see that all of this Old Testament, everything they have been going through, is like a, a glass lens to see and to view the Messiah. So probably understood all of the law, all of the writings, all of the prophets, they're all pointing towards this culminating moment of Christ coming. So then Christ is the, the fulfillment of all that they are, all that they were, all of the stories that they had heard of who they are and, and how David had saved them and Joshua had conquered the land. All of that is finding fulfillment then here in Christ. And without him, their lives and who they are is entirely incomplete. Even though they got a great story, their lives are incomplete apart from Christ. So they were, the trap they fall into then is that they're coming and looking for a Messiah to come and relieve them of their present sufferings. They wanted to be exalted. They didn't want a, a Messiah to come and to save the world. No, they wanted self-exaltation. They wanted someone to lift them up. And because of that, they miss it. They miss it entirely. And brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to go, yeah, they suck. They missed it. How did they miss it? But we do the same thing. We fall into the same trap, don't we? We want a deliverer to come. We want a deliverer to come and a Christianity that will relieve the problems of us at work, who will remove the chaos out of our homes, a, a, a faith that will bring us and bring us a little maybe financial stability. And that's what we want in the Christian faith. And so we want a deliverer to come. And we always think of these external things out there, but we never think of the sin that is within us. And we never think, God, redeem me and deliver me from my own sin. So we want a deliverer to come. But we don't need one to deliver us from broken relationships. We need a deliverer to come and redeem us from our own selfishness. That's what we need. We don't need a deliverer to come and to free us from our addiction. No, we need a Savior who will come and change our hearts in such a way that all of our affections and all of our adoration is upon Him and Him alone. Then the addiction just kind of takes care of itself. So it wasn't just easy for them to miss the Messiah. All of those works that he had done in front of them, all of those things that they had missed, it's really easy for us to look upon them and go, man, they blew it. Meanwhile, we got this, you know, 
plank in our own eyes that we have to pull out. And when we think of the Christian faith, we want someone to deliver us from the world around us rather than from the sin within us. So don't let your own desire to be exalted like they had be the reason that you miss the Messiah who comes and he was cloaked in humility. Okay, so we have verse 1 here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. Now, when you live in the ancient world, much of your life is just spent under the rule and dictation of someone who you never met, who you never voted for. It's just he is there and he can control your life. And so everything's going along well if you're Joseph, right? You're maybe finishing up your apprenticeship as a carpenter and you're engaged to this young girl whom you're madly in love with. But then this man comes from this faraway land and he's looking to have some new taxes. And so when they take a census of the world, they're not just wondering how many people are there, but they want to know how many people are in this region so we can tax them at this rate. And we'll put our guy in place there. And if he gets more money, then he can keep it. If he gets less, then he's out and we're going to bring someone in. So this is a, we want to impose our rule. This is not a, oh, I wonder how many people we have. It's not a a curiosity thing. It's a, oh, more taxes are coming kind of approach. So then Joseph, he's living in this town of Nazareth, which is in in northern Israel, in, in Galilee. And they go to the Sea of Galilee, go down the Jordan River. Then go up to Jerusalem, make the turn at Jericho, go off that road to Jerusalem, and then head south, then to Bethlehem. And you're seeing the hand of God all over this. This despot ruler in this faraway land is bringing, God is using him and working through him to bring fulfillment of his promises. Go back to to, um, Micah. Micah tells us about the one who's going to be coming at the last days. And in chapter 4, he's letting us know what he will be like. In chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. A little bit down, a little bit more there in verse Three of chapter 4. What's going to be this kingdom then? So you have this king who's going to come. What's this kingdom going to look like? Well, they will plow their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation will not lift up sword against a nation. Never again will they train for war. Okay, well, what about his ministry? That's what the nations look like. Well, what about his ministry then? Well, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. Which brings to you to John 9. Well, why is this man as he is? Is because of his sin or his parents. This is the ministry of Christ that is happening. And where is it going to come from? All of this, this great fulfillment of the kingdoms, bringing peace of the lame beginning to walk, of the outcast being welcomed in, which is a little side note, which is why I think think this church is really, really tight and strong is because so many of us have been outcast and now we actually have a place to be 
home. But where is this going to happen? Surely it must become from some great place. But no, go to chapter 5 of Micah. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephraim, too little to be among the clans of Judah. For from you one shall go forth from me to be ruler of Israel. His going forth are from long ago and the days are from eternity. Verse then, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord of God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he, he, this one to come, shall be their peace. Not the removal of Rome. That's not what's going to be bring peace for us. It's not the next administration, wherever you're at, whatever side of the aisle. That's what not what's going to bring peace. But no, it comes through Christ. And it through, comes through Christ alone. This little babe who was born in this insignificant little town. I mean, it's a little village at that point. Probably has maybe 200 people at the most. This insignificant little village. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't Athens. It wasn't Jerusalem. He comes to Bethlehem, which is in line of David. This great fulfillment. That someone will come from the line of David and rule on this throne forever and ever. And from a human perspective, this makes no sense whatsoever. If you want to make yourself known, you don't pick an obscure village on the outskirts of an empire. But the birth of Christ is adorned and wrapped in humility. So briefly, what is, what is humility then? When we think of humility, we often think of someone in low estate, who, someone who doesn't have much, and they're happy with it. But that is to think of someone only in relation to themselves or in relation to the world. But when you bring God into the picture, who is the center of all things, then you see that our humility is not just someone who doesn't have a lot and is content with it. uh, But it's actually someone who realizes that all of their life is under the sovereign rule and reign of God. So then when you begin to combine these two, Humility is our posture before God lived out amongst other people. Am I low before God? Do I prostrate myself before God? Well, then I will live that out among other people. Conversely, pride is the opposite, the same thing. What is my posture before God? And that is lived out then amongst other people. So we're seeing here with this Christ that every aspect of his life... Is dictated by his joyful father. And he places himself under the rule and reign of God, his heavenly father. So what is our posture of our heart in all of this? We can't just be humble in relation to the world. We must bow ourselves down and be humble before God. And know that he is reigning over every aspect of our lives. And so humility, brothers and sisters... It's not just taking stuff out of your life. No, humility is a heart that is broken and low before God. And if that is who you are and that is the posture of a heart, it will naturally flow into how you interact with other people. 
So we see this with Christ, even in the birth of Christ, this little hamlet, this little village, this nothing city just cast off. That's where he comes and that's where eternity begins to pierce into time in this humble little city. Go on here in verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So what's actually happening here? Um, Mary and Joseph, they're engaged, they're betrothed, they're not yet married. And they're making this several day trek down to Bethlehem because that's where the family is. And so then you go back to the family and you say, hey, we're back, we made it. Oh, yeah, you may have noticed my not wife is pregnant. And so there's this little grand entrance they have. And the humiliation that comes to the family then. And so in Bethlehem, it's a city, they have caves there. They're usually not a lot of trees, so you live in the caves. And so they come and you want to live and you have your room, but your family says, no, uh, it's not going to happen. The animals live with you. You can go... We'll be generous. You can go stay with the animals. Your pregnant niece or daughter, whoever it is, gets pressed out to be with the cattle. She then gives birth in this cave. And even up till 65 years ago, you could find kids uh, being born in caves surrounding Bethlehem. So they come to this humble city and Christ is born into these most humble of circumstances. Now family strife because this lady who is your daughter or nephew or niece or whoever she might be is coming back into this family setting. So you now you have family strife and you have embarrassment and you have people talking. And this brokenness is what Christ is now born into. And this loving, humble mother who's being obedient to God is now facing the scorn of the world. Don't be surprised if your humility and your brokenness before God brings the scorn of the world. She wraps her firstborn son and places him in a manger And it's appalling to our senses. But it's perfect according to the will of God. So look look at this humble mother. Go a chapter earlier here, right in the Magnificat. It's chapter 1 of Luke in verse 46. And Mary says, My soul exalts the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of my servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So how does Mary regard herself? 
How is she qualified? Well, she knows that she is preeminently qualified because, not because of anything she's done, because of her humble estate. And you see this clear pattern throughout Scripture. You think you have nothing to offer, yet you are the perfect soft clay in the potter's hands. The Lord loves to use the humble for His purposes. Matthew 18, it says, whoever humbles himself, like this child, the social outcast, this child, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will then conversely will be exalted. James, he writes, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. And recalling Isaiah 2, this is why God uses the humble. All of the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That is why... God loves to use the humble and the broken. Those who have nothing to offer. Little young girls who are now pregnant even though they're not married. This is why God loves to use them. Is that He and He alone will then be exalted. Okay, so we have our Christ coming. He has a humble heart. Which is not just that He doesn't have much in the world. But that He has a heart that is lowly and broken before God, His Heavenly Father. And so God, He's obedient to Him. And God gives Him this adorning life of humility. And you see that in this humble town. And a humble mother. And a humble birth. And now finally these humble guests. Verse 8, it says, In that same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, this means a house of bread. But it's six miles south of Jerusalem. And the early uh, Jewish writing tells us that Bethlehem was a place that would shepherd these sheep that would be used in the sacrifices, uh, the temple sacrifices. So the sheep then used for daily sacrifice in the temple, were pastured in these fields surrounding Bethlehem. It's how fitting and how beautiful that these shepherds are the first to hear of the birth of this great shepherd. And remember, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And here he is, Christ, who has humbled himself, is now already being exalted his angel comes and he says, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's not just a little news flash or a little update. No, this is good news of great joy for all the people. And why is it? Well, because the Savior, one who's going to save you from your sins... He has been born. He's been cloaked in fragility and wrapped in humility. And come and come. And he's waiting for you to come. So what do they do? Well, they go. Verse 16. You can see that with great haste they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And the shepherds begin to tell them what they, what they heard. And it brought all of them to wonder. But then Mary... 
treasured up all of these things and begins to ponder them in her heart. And here is the response then of these humble shepherds who come, who saw an angel and have this glorious news of this, of this Savior who is going to come in this humble town to a humble mother and here they are, them humble guests. What do the shepherds do? They see all of this great news and then they, they return glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You see, brothers and sisters, when you have God in it, that's all you need. All of the pageantry that we love in our own lives becomes a distraction. It would have been a distraction for the, these lowly shepherds to see this glorious Messiah. When God was in it, when the angel came and representing God, that was enough. They didn't need anything else. They didn't clean themselves up. No, they just went. This is even true in our own lives. This humility of the moment allows the glory of God to shine. So briefly, just two things. How do you be humble? Well, you can't conjure it up, right? This is, this is the, the, the predicament of a sermon. I think I mentioned this a while ago, maybe a year ago. This is a predicament of a sermon. We have all of these things and we say, you can't do it. You can't do it. You're a horrible, wretched sinner. Then you come to the point and you go, yes, I can't do it. Praise be to God. He's done it. And then we're tempted to say, now go do it on your way out. And then the cycle repeats and you come back in the next week and go, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So instead of saying, do this, we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like for the Spirit of Christ to work this through me? If this is true, what does it look like for Christ to work this through my broken, selfish, rebellious, prideful heart? I think I got everybody in here with all those things. What does it look like for God to work that through my heart? So we can't conjure up humility can't manufacture it. It's a posture of response. If you want to be humble, if you want to be low, you don't press yourself down. You lift your eyes up and behold a glorious God. It's a reaction that is that takes place to something greater. So this prophet Isaiah is a man of brokenness. He says, woe is me for I am lost. Well, he's not just saying that because he's a humble good man. No, he's saying that in response to seeing God in his throne. So if you want humility in your life, don't lift your, don't put your eyes down, your shoulders down. No, lift your head up and behold the glory of God. And humility will come in a response to that. Finally, in your humility, come to Christ as you are. Look at these shepherds. They didn't clean themselves up. These social outcasts, they have nothing, nothing, nothing to bring. Nothing. But they came and they ran with great haste. They run to Christ and they come and they see this Christ who is cloaked in humility. And they go, that is the one so brothers and sisters, wherever you're at, come to Christ. 
Don't adorn yourself with what you think you need, but let Christ adorn you with himself. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we are so broken and so selfish, God, and we love to, to stand and stand tall and stand proud and think we are something, but God, it is only you. Let us have hearts that are broken and lowly before you. Let our eyes be lifted up to you, that our faces might fall before you and worship you as you ought to be worshipped. Amen. Amen.